0: Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast, a general practice podcast brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. Illuminating Primary Care is here to quiz primary care leaders to offer professional knowledge, experience, and insight on the biggest topics in general practice. It's the podcast to listen to if you work in primary care. Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Illuminating Primary Care, brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. Uh, I'm your host today, James Truswell, and I'm joined by David Clark, Managing Partner at Mender Vale Medical Practice, a six site practice serving 70,000 patients across North Somerset and Bristol. Welcome, David.
2: Hi, James. How goes it today? Almost the weekend, and you must be happy after a Sheffield United win.
1: <laughs> indeed I am um, so we're here to discuss um, how a, a smallish practice in a village in Somerset has grown to become what Mendip Vale is today which is the biggest GP partnership in the southwest and one of the biggest partnerships in the UK so David first of all you joined the practice in 2015 and um, can you tell me, at that point, what was the, the size of the practice in terms of, of patients and number of sites, and how does the whole operation differ um, today?
2: Well, well it's, it's been a really interesting journey over the last sort of six, seven years. So I joined, was fortunate to join just as two small practices, 8,000 and 11,000, decided to to merge. They they've worked together for, for quite a while in a in a federation, but were mindful that whilst Federated gave them some options of, of, of working collaboratively, working together, it didn't give them that what you get from merging, i.e. you are already in it together. So I think they were really forward thinking. Um, it, it was a, a perfect opportunity to join. So I joined in the October 2015, just as the two practices were coming together on, on the merge date, um, and shortly after that, we had a, a vision, if you like, to continue growing with like-minded practices. So we, we took on a, another practice down in uh, on the edge of Western Supermary and World. and that was an APMS contract that had come up for a, uh, for a bid that we were successful with. And as we did that, a neighboring practice was, was really interested in what we were offering. So we looked at merging with them. Another one fell off the back of that, another one fell off the back of that, <laughs> then one in Bristol then one in South Gloucester. So we find ourselves now covering the whole of Bristol, South Gloucester, and North Somerset with a a really diverse patient base, Mm -hmm. 70,000 patients. The the biggest change, I guess, is, for me, we're starting in somewhere where I I came from an acute hospital where you had a a finance team, you had an HR team, a facilities department, you had all of those... um, different departments at your disposal and you come into general practice uh, and it was me just me
3: yeah. and,
2: just me. <laughs> and uh, there were no uh, you know, other structures or supports in place and it, in some respects it, it was really enlightening and you sort of look and think crikey and I've got a blank canvas to work with some, some really great GP partners that are really keen to do something different from the norm but also kind of scary because there isn't mm. a uh another group department big team that you can go to to ask for help guidance or anything like that Mm -hmm. but you know in that time i think we've, we've grown really well and what we've been able to show is that by working at scale that actually merged that we've been able to take advantage of the ars scheme we've been able to grow so we've got good coverage during all core hours We're less impacted by annual leave or sickness as an organization and now have what we didn't have when I first started. So we do have people in facilities. We do have people in HR. We do have people in finance. And I think that makes my job easier because I'm now able to, I guess, focus on two or three things rather than 15 things. And Mm. I do those two or three things better (laughs) than trying to do 15 Yeah.
1: I think you do more than two or three things, but anyway. <laughs> so, um, so at the time that you joined, it was the, it was the first merger then. Um, so, no, so nineteen thousand patients at that point. Um, so, at that point, how how many GPs were working for you? Well, how many partners salaries and salaries, and how many are you uh, in total now?
2: Uh, so, there were six partners at the time. Um, there were another six salary GPs. And now we've moved to eighteen partners, thirty-eight GPs in total. You know the this, this, the scary thing that I see now is that when I first joined, we had a, a wage bill of one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty
3: thousand a month. And
2: yeah. Last month's was uh, seven hundred yeah. <laughs> and twenty-five thousand. Yeah. And we have you know a team of three hundred. And I yeah. think the biggest benefits that I've seen is that rather than have one or two say physios or one or two clinical pharmacists Mm. we've we've got a larger team so they've got that peer support they've got a lead for their particular specialty Mm. but as a clinician if you're referring you're not beholden to when do they work next you've got the cover all during core hours so you haven't got to change your decision making because oh you know the physio doesn't work on a Wednesday in today's Tuesday, so I can't refer them tomorrow. You've got that ability to keep your referral uh, pathway and the, the way that you operate the same all the way through. Yeah. And, and it was really evident at the start. We, we were one of the first to have a clinical pharmacist. We had one clinical pharmacist and 23,000 patients went on holiday for two weeks. And, and, you know, it was everybody had lost the ability to actually come. And <laughs> thinking, crikey, you know, having just one or something is, is really good but yeah. you really notice it when that person's not there. And for that person, whether they're a pharmacist, a physio, a social subscriber, can become quite isolated if you're the only person role. Mm. Well. Whereas if you've got a, 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 a peer-supporting group, I think it's more rewarding for the, um, the post-holder. And they're also working for the same organization. So you're not having to you know, work at this site on a Monday, that site on a Wednesday, that site on a Friday. Yeah. So you're building these relationships and rapport with the team there, and yeah. that sense of belonging, and you don't feel as though you're being sort of pushed and pillar at the post, and not being able to offer continuity because you know you're not there for another four or five days. I think it—it it, it, it certainly seemed. I think in terms of feedback that we've had, helped us with retention. Uh, certainly helped us with recruitment, mm. and I hope has ensured that we can offer safe and effective care because we've got that sort of resilient base to work from so we've not had to use locums we've been really fortunate that we've had a fairly solid team up and down the country like everywhere there are challenges with a lot more demand coming through
1: yes there certainly is Um, so you've grown from two sites to six sites 19,000 patients to to 70,000 patients six partners to 18 partners 12 salarids. I think you said to 38 salarids. so that all sounds like a lot of work <laughs> so why why did you decide to grow the practice um, and what what are the benefits
2: I, I think for me I was really fortunate to join a practice that was already forward-thinking So had like tried federating and said, you know, this this is great, and why everything's working well. We're all really, you know, in it together and you know, standing shoulder to shoulder. But very quickly noticed that when there was a particular pressure, everybody reverted back to their own business, their own team, um, and and realised that there would be far more, I guess, sustainability and security at the end of the day from working as a larger organisation. Yeah. Um. But it, it's it's been for me, I guess a a really hard sell. For places where GP practices are all technically small businesses,
3: mm. and
2: you're saying that you want to really reformulate that model and turn it into something different. And, and people that maybe are coming to the end of, the, of their career, got a couple of years left, don't, don't want to sort of embrace that sort of change and see remaining as we are as the best option. And I think with the with the demand in, in Services, the the recruitment pressures, patients' expectations, standing still is just not an option. It would have been yes. nice if PCNs had, had worked, I, and I, I I think in a few cases they have, but yeah. I haven't seen from from working as a PCN how people have really really sort of embraced, enjoyed that work.
1: Mm. Okay, that's an, yeah, an interesting comment. Um, the PCNs haven't worked, of course, uh, as far as I'm aware. So you're your own PCN in North Somerset. And, in fact, are you in the Bristol sites as well?
2: So So in Bristol, we, we've got one other practice in our, in our PCN, so yeah. there'll and, and another practice in Bristol, but essentially, in, in North sunset, we are on our own PCN, and it's not that we don't want to collaborate with other practices. We just have different sort of pressures and, and demands on our services that you, you don't see in a practice with eight or 10 thousand patients. Yeah, um, and you know, and quite rightly, that, you know, they have a different need to what we have as a as a larger uh, provider.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's. I'm sure, kind of being your own PCN in North Somerset must have its um, must have its benefits. um but there are less well, meetings, I know
2: it, which I which I quite like. <laughs> um, so it's, less, it's, meetings. Yeah, less meetings, uh, less <laughs> meetings. I don't have to meet with myself. So that that. That's, <laughs> Um,
1: yeah.
2: but, I, but I guess it enables you to get some traction under ideas so yeah. if you're in a PCM with four or five other practices they've got different pressures, different issues and, and you're trying to concentrate on a, a a change in service or something it can be very hard to get all four or five practices in that PCM mm. to be able to spare the, the yeah. commitment to do that so then you get the frustrations yeah. that one practice is moving at a different pace to another it's not getting the traction behind it And we do a lot of meetings, a lot of talking, and we're not necessarily able to put those ideas into practice.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, Obviously, a lot of decision makers and I suppose to use the R's, the ARRS scheme as as an example. If, you know, one practice wants a paramedic and if they want a physician associate, it's, you know, potential for arguments and maybe just that elongated decision making.
2: Well, yeah, exactly that. Um, You know, and, and different demographics have different needs. And then you get to, you know, the, the funding it is pretty good. However, if you're a practice of eight or 9,000, it doesn't necessarily buy you a great deal in terms of bodies. But mm. if you pull those resources together for sort of 70 or 1,000, you can then have three or four physios. You can then have three or four um, pharmacists. You can have your own social prescribers. And bringing some of those services in-house has been really beneficial as well. You know at, yeah a lot of places have outsourced because they don't have the headspace or capacity to provide the supervision um, for say a, a physio or for a social prescriber and you're, and you're buying that time in from somewhere but you're not necessarily getting the best value and having somebody who is aligned with, with your business model
3: mm, yeah
2: so bringing them in house I think we get better value um, and also probably that sense of belonging. So you're actually working you know, for the patients in the practice yeah. as, a, as a whole team.
1: Yeah. I guess, yeah, they're working to your way ways of working as well. They just work for Mendit Vale effectively although via a PCN, whereas other pharmacists, paramedics, et cetera, may work across three or four sites and they might all want something done slightly differently, um, that exactly. type of thing. And that's
2: and that, and that you know, the frustration that I've heard from a few that, um in a few roles where they've worked across different sites so there's a slightly or mm. pathway and then you, you become how do I do it for this place how do I it do for that place almost so you're learning a process uh, time and time again because it's not all aligned and yeah. you may have those relationships with the GP partners on one site that give you Uh, I guess, free freer reign to do different things that you go into the next site and they they haven't really sort of tested you in terms of Mm -hmm. ability and understanding. So they sort of hold you back on what you're able to do. Whereas if you're in the same place day after day, um, hopefully you're you're given that autonomy and that sense Mm -hmm. of uh, freedom to grow and develop. And, And I think for every single one of our roles, we try to get people to play to the top of their game. So we were the first to have uh, nurses doing uh, coil fix and implants, you know, why does it have to be a GP? We've got mm, APs yeah. doing joint injections, you know, again, why does it have to be a GP?
3: Uh, yeah. What can
2: we do to invest in people so they feel challenged, still able to work in a, in a safe way and supported, but able to actually up their game and learn new skills? It doesn't always have to be the GP.
1: Yeah, 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 no, I agree. So, um, your growth is is super impressive. Um, I think, alongside just growth, I think the impressive side is um, the practice obviously runs extremely well. You've got an excellent reputation in the area. Um, I know that you know first hand from the amount of GPs and, and Allied Health that I've spoken to. Your, ex, your your reputation is excellent. Whereas I think you know sometimes there can be a misconception that practice growing or bigger bigger setups are are, are bad uh, or or um, not as well run, um, and maybe not growing as uh, competently as you have, whereas I know your growth, although it's been quick, um, you've only been growing when you're actually ready to grow, and you've actually got staff in the pipeline, clinicians ready um, to take on another site. But I suppose what what I'd like to know is, um, how, how, how have you grown to the size you are now? What are kind of the ins and outs? Because um, obviously, not everyone's done it. So, obviously, you've you been doing things that many of the practices either have chosen not to do or, or can't do. So, h- how have you actually grown to, uh, to where you are now?
2: I think the, it, it's been really hard. You know, merging is plumbing is hard. Um, yeah. And changing cultures. And, and, and I think one of the biggest things that we've had to overcome, you know, the challenge really has been you work in a single site in a practice where you know everything and you have that span of control because you're all mm-hmm. talking about the site and you've got, I don't know, 30-odd people there and you feel, I guess, more in control than if you're a, on a site, there's five others, there's 300 people. But I look at it that I know who to go and ask. If I don't know the answer, I don't need to know everything, but I know who to go to to go and find the answer. But for some people, giving up that sense of knowing everything is, is really difficult. And I think particularly for traditional GP partners, they found that step change probably really hard. Some have embraced mm. it really well and, and going back to the spinning plates and said, I prefer to have one or two plates to spin and do it really well than to have 15 and they're all you know, falling off and causing no end of mm. chaos and sleepless nights. So I think we, we've given that sense of sort of security and that feeling of that you're in part of a larger, more sustainable organization and balance that against feeling as though you've lost some degree of autonomy. But we've been really keen to still ensure for the team and patients that each site is very much its own site, its partner-led with a surgery manager. And whilst it might not have that same traditional sort of small family practice feel, we've tried to embrace that as much as we can, mm. but we it by a good sort of back-office support.
1: Mm. Okay, so what um what would you say the biggest things you've learned either – yourself or, or as a, as a practice um, during this this growth period you know going back to seven years if you knew everything you knew now then what what are those key things that that you've learned along the way
2: you, you, you can never do enough around communication you know the <laughs> you, you think that you've, you've given them a weekly update a newsletter you spoke to people and, and, it, and it still doesn't reach it you, they, you you really have got to keep going back out and back out and back out Yeah. Um, Are you talking
1: about your staff? In terms of communicating with your staff,
2: staff and patients, you know there there are so many uh, sort of misconceptions that that go out there, and then you think Mm -hmm. we 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 gave them an update when this was happening, and and people are busy, they've missed it, or it's not the right media to to sort of to hit them with. Mm -hmm. That you can never do enough around communication. You know, Mm -hmm. I do this. you know, I'm sure we've told you that we probably have told you that <laughs> once or twice, but actually we needed to do it three or four times.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: and in terms of not being afraid to to, to make a mistake, and, and you know, my view is nothing's set in stone. So if if we merge, there may be a mended way of doing things, but it doesn't mean it's the final version. So if we've mm-hmm. merged and we've learned something and we can improve what we uh, what we do, happy to change it. It doesn't mean that you're on almost a treadmill of continual change. Mm. but th- there should be no reason why you can't improve what you're already doing it doesn't have to be you know we've always done it that way
1: mm. and um obviously so communication is the, the the biggest thing you've learned but is there um, is there any kind of specific biggest challenges um that well yeah the hardest things to overcome kind of in the last 7 years apart from i suppose communication being a, a broader thing that you've you've learned consistently o- a- along the way have there been um Big challenges where you've thought, you know, how are we going to get over this?
2: Oh, right, uh, yeah, a- absolutely. <laughs> I think um, COVID brought us a, 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 an awful lot of of challenge. Um, I'm not sure how much we've been then able to reflect back on it and say what can we adapt, and change, and do better. Because I think we're still fighting for headspace with everything else that's going on. Mm. Um, but <laughs> So, so as well as the, the communication, um, the other things that we could have probably done or if I had my time over again that we could have done better was ensuring that we we listened more to, to both patients and the team. And, and, and that can be really hard to do because you've got one of me, but there, there are six sites. How, how do you ensure three of the people feel as though they've been given you know, airtime or, or or feel as though they've been listened to? And, and, I, and I still don't really know the answer to that. I think we, we try to be uh, as, as visible as possible. We have whole practice meetings each month, but we don't necessarily hit everybody all the time. I think the pensions the, the biggest change has been how we've had to adapt post-COVID with the rise of demand about what we are able to do and be probably less accessible than, than what we were sort of, you know, at the beginning, sort of five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. That level of service just just isn't sustainable. And something where you get paid. But my biggest learn coming from the acute was that we got paid a global sum, and it didn't matter whether you saw that patient once or three hundred and sixty five times. That global yeah. sum didn't change. Yeah. And and it staggered me. You know, in in the, in the, <laughs> the hospital, you know, they you you, you do the, the first sort of referral, you get paid, or follow up, you get paid do an echo, get paid, do another test, get paid. And then I came in and I was thinking, crikey, there's something wrong with this. They haven't quite worked this one out. (laughs) (laughs) This (laughs) can't be right. Via, you know, a travel policy, you you can't even go away on holiday for two weeks for sort of 90 quid, but for for 90 quid a year to provide what we do is, and money's not the answer to everything. However, I, I, I think that's such a, such a challenge in the current times and where yeah. you know cost of living is has has increased, cost mm. of supplies has have increased, all of those bits make it more and more difficult to maintain a, a level of service of six, seven years ago. And um, we're against the backdrop of seeing a twenty percent increase in demand, yet the population's grown less than three percent, doesn't stack
1: up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um you mentioned about communication before, um, and you also referenced that there's 300 of you in total. So as the, I suppose, ultimately, alongside the the GP partners, as, as the leader, as certainly the non-clinical leader for these 300 people, how, I mean, there's 25 of us here, and that's challenging enough. So how, how do you lead that many people? And obviously, I know there's practice managers at each site, but... Um, as someone who covers so many sites as well, with so many staff, and I suppose sometimes you, you've got to be unseen, haven't you? Because you can't be everywhere all the time. So, h- h- how do you manage to lead? Or, yeah, I guess you're not directly leading them, but you, you, you're ultimately the leader. So, h- how do you? How do you do that? <laughs> oh,
2: you're absolutely right. It, it, you can't be in all of those places all the time. People mm. work part time, different shifts. And even if you went into every practice once a week, you, you wouldn't meet all of those people. I think it goes back to that we still want to have as a model is that very much each site is its own identity, so there are partners there and it should feel as though, although you're part of this larger organization, for one of the better words, you're that franchise, um, but you, you, you put your own twist on what we mm-hmm. deliver for the, for the needs of your patients. So very much for the, the partners on there, no different from being a partner, I guess, in a single site uh, organization. You, you still need to be that, that that visible lead on your site. It's interesting because in the majority of cases, everybody sort of takes that and embraces that. Probably the biggest area that that it falls down on is, is when there's a, a difficult decision to be made that people then revert back to, oh, let's go in now. Uh, ask David or, or head office, because they don't necessarily want to say, oh yeah, we've decided that for example, when we started doing Saturdays <laughs> they've decided we're right. doing Saturdays, and so you go actually, as an organisation, we've decided to do this, it's the right thing for our patient population, uh, so I guess that's a, a still a, a challenge and the vast majority of partners are very good at stepping up and doing mm. that. But it's, it's human nature, isn't it if you've got that opportunity to uh, I guess sort of uh, duck down a little bit and say, oh, I don't know where this came out from. Um,
1: yeah. That, that... So basically all, all the difficult um, conversations uh, lead to you, essentially. Um, <laughs> that's true leadership though, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and, I, and I've got to say, I think that we have an, a, a really fantastic team. And I think that in a, in a world where they do a really, really difficult, hard job, and that's at GP level, at nurse level, at AP level, at reception level, at patient coordinator level. I think we're really, really fortunate to have such a good team. Yeah. Um, good. And it's, it's about, hopefully, that we've encouraged that, uh, that ethos of having that sort of can-do attitude and taking responsibility. And I say to the team that if, if you go out and you do something that you believe is in the best interest of the patient, the organisation, even if it's wrong, I'll support you. But, you know, feel as though you've got that support and autonomy to go and make
3: that, that choice and decision
2: out there. Okay. Still working work Excellent. in progress. And if I could find a way, as I said, to, to be out more <laughs> often and seeing people,
1: oh, that, I that, would. That, that's it, isn't it? Because, I know, such you've got such a huge responsibility, you, you know, not just to your staff, but to, to 70,000 people as well. Um, and I just think it just must be so difficult to be that leader across so many sites, not being that, you know, I know, you're based at one site mainly and you cover other sites sometimes, but it, it must be so hard, um, to, to be, to be unseen, um, because human beings have a way of, um, sometimes being, I think negative. And, um, and so in terms of staffing, um, you know, David's a leader, but we never see him. Um, you know, it, and that's something you, you could never do anything about. Obviously, I'm not saying they do say that. <laughs> but yeah, I can be. only imagine, based on my experience of managing and leadership, you, you literally, you, you can't work enough hours. You can't do everything. It's impossible to be everywhere all the time. Um, and, yeah, it's just a really tricky thing to manage. Yeah, um,
2: absolutely, James. And I, and I don't think there is a a, a, a perfect sort of um, way of, of delivering that. And, and we we're really fortunate that we have a a sort of less than ten percent staff turnover rate. You know, I think it's, it's the team have a lot of opportunities to stay with us, grow and develop, so they don't have to you know move to, to to find sort of progression. But we always look at at it, it exit interviews, and, and it's interesting when you look through, but trying to get something tangible back from it. You know, they say, you know, what, what could be improved communication? How I don't know, but you need to improve communication. What does that look? Oh, you ought to sit on the shop floor, bring a chair, sit in the middle of the shop floor and um, you know, uh, wait for people to ask you questions. You go, <laughs> how, how do you do that across six sites covering everybody?
1: They won't ask me anything, do they? That's what they want. <laughs> they want an AMA session. Yeah.
2: It, it's, we're, we're trying to get that at our whole practice meeting each month uh, mm-hmm. in terms of giving people a really sort of uh, transparent view of what we're trying to achieve as a business, what the challenges are. And hopefully answering the questions about if we can't do something, the reasons why we can't do something. And we yeah. try to ensure that the whole team are aware of why we're doing something, not just you must do health checks, not just that you must do uh, this many calls, not not those sort of things, but saying why you need to do it. So hopefully people have got yeah. the understanding of what we're trying to achieve. Um, and, and listening in terms of, what can we do to tweak and change? I don't think there are any massive quick wins that are going to dramatically change the, the demand on services or people's working lives, but we can do little tweaks that hopefully make life a little bit easier. A, a few years back, we put in trolleys into the clinical room that were stopped. Uh, and the admin team stopped these trolleys up each week. So as a clinician, if you're looking for something, you've never got to go in. Wander down the corridor for something they don't use that often, or work out where it's going to be. which should hopefully be there, and it meant that you saved, you know, a couple of minutes each day. But hopefully they add up to make yeah. the hard job a, a little bit more bearable.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> um, so I just want to ask a question about um, the sustainability of primary care from a uh, from an employee point of view. So, um, how how do you make Primary care and, and working at Mendip Vale sustainable for your staff and in particular uh, for the clinicians because obviously bur- burnout is on the agenda. Um, workload has been high in GP for I don't know a f- at least 10 years, ma- maybe much much longer, and it's um, and it's likely to peak probably again this this winter. I would have thought. So h- how do you continually make it sustainable um, so that you hold on to your your clinicians?
3: Several
2: approaches, and, and I still don't think we found the sort of final answer, but the inroads into that. So, encouraging the clinicians to develop a special interest. So, mm-hmm. it's it's great having sort of you know nine hundred seventy thousand patients because you've got that uh, wide enough cohort of patients to be able to develop an interest. So, we support people in terms of uh, training and development for a particular special interest. Um, stretching in terms of what they're able to do and undertake. So, as I was mentioning about the, the nurses doing coils, APs mm-hmm. uh, doing joint injections, finding out what interest they have. So, other than doing, and I don't mean just doing six sessions, but doing six sessions of patient-facing work day after day, week after week, mm-hmm. if it isn't sustainable. How do you mix it up? You can change the template. So, you know, we've got fifteen-minute appointments, and you've got a a hopefully something that feels manageable, but how do you make that something that you can do for year after year after year? So what special interest do you want to develop on top? Yeah. Because we've had the headspace from from being uh, like well-recruited and working with yourselves in terms of ensuring that we've still got a continual flow of people coming through, we've been able to branch out into other things. So we were able to offer, uh, we've taken a... A hotel for asylum seekers, a clinician that's got a special interest does a session down there each week. So I think not only are we providing a great service at that hotel for those asylum seekers, also for that clinician they're doing something that they've got a particular interest in. Mm. We've got clinicians that um, enjoy doing research, occupational health, doing those other than just being face-to-face, doing normal general practice work. What else can you do on top? Yeah. tweaking in terms of what do they get through you know we, we've managed to reduce down uh, things like home visits by having a really good team of advanced practitioners we invested in a couple of cars to to go out and bring patients in so we can hopefully make that time more effective for the clinicians so the patient would come to them for the same day urgent
1: yeah amazing and go
2: out, particularly in a, you know, a, a more rural area where you could be driving for 10 15 minutes and Losing that time, um, yeah. Whereas the patient comes into you, not only do you save that time, but you've got all the equipment. And if you want a ECG, you want a blood test, you can get that done there and then to hopefully you know solve it first time rather than Mm. making two or three appointments. Managing the the workload in terms of not continually getting the team to work at one hundred and ten percent is not. Yeah, it's, it's it's really hard, isn't it? Because you, 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 there is, without a doubt, there's more demand out there than ever before, and, and people continually want to take that, um, you know, suck up that development And it's interesting to see at the moment how much uh, is, is hitting our lists around dental care, and as other areas of, of hitting, you know, we've we've seen it, mental health, for the last sort of couple of years, where there hasn't been capacity, that that's become more and more prominent day in day out. The waits for the acute, now they've gone to up to 104 weeks. Those patients still continue to come back to the GP while they're waiting for that. So you're seeing that demand. But now, as I said, dental patients coming back in, how how do you manage all of that and still make this sustainable? Because however much capacity you put in, people want more and more from it. Mm. It goes back to how do you make your sort of, 90-odd quid stretch to uh, (laughs) to, uh, to deliver all the
1: 90 quid. Well, yeah. uh, It's a a
2: mix of, 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 I said, hopefully giving people stuff that they enjoy doing to break up their week, listening in terms of what tweaks and changes can we make to make the the day-to-day working life a little bit better. Uh, But fundamentally underpinned by having that that workforce and not waiting until you've got a gap. We've, We've been over the, since I started, we've done a continual recruitment process, not because we've had gaps, but because you want to get those people through. So if you do take on, we're doing the infusion service for people with COVID, you've got that capacity. You're not yeah. switching, uh, you know, a workforce that's already stretched to do something yeah. else. So the recruitment underpins having, um, I, I think, a job that's sustainable, manageable, because you're not asking people to step up. If you're in a practice and there's four GPs, one's off on holiday, one goes sick, you've lost 50% of your capacity. What do you do? Do you do you kick that demand down the road? Do you cancel it? Does everybody do 50% more? How do you manage that? Because we've got a larger cohort, we're able to share that capacity out amongst the sites. So if one site is yeah. particularly slam, you've got the ability to absorb it in the other sites without kicking the problem down the road or yeah. asking everybody to work. 50% harder, um, you know, just to maintain what we've got. So I think that has been helpful and, and meant merging is, is is probably the best option because you are genuinely all sharing the same resources.
1: Yeah. So I think obviously the, the, the accumulation of the things that you do um, to make primary care sustainable for your for your clinicians obviously works because your staff retention, um, well, I, I know in terms of clinicians is, is excellent. Um, It's certainly much, much better than the market average um, with burnout on the agenda. So, yeah, the accumulation of those things is definitely working. But what would you say um, that GPs would say, your GPs would say, is the best thing about working at at Mendit Vale?
2: I think that that we make a a tough job more doable. So I, I don't think we make it an easy job, but I think we make it more doable. That the... Financial stability that we've got from working at scale has enabled us to invest in the estate so you've got a nice environment to work from. Mm-hmm. We invest in the kit so you're not chasing around because there's only one BP machine. Those, those, those bits that hopefully make it a little bit better in, in, in a really tough place. Plus the opportunities, though we don't have a traditional model of partner or salary. There, there are steps along the way. Um, mm-hmm. And That's worked well for people that want to sort of try. So we do a an associate role where you you do you take a, an area of say cough or a, an area of something where you take responsibility for delivering those services and be an associate GP. That would be reflected in your your pay time to actually do those extra bits. Um, a one of the better word, a non-equity partner role so before you go into full-blown partnership the ability again to take on additional responsibilities try before you buy see if it, you know it's always struck me how do you work out that you want to be a partner you know, and
1: <clears throat> yes
2: we've we've also got i think in 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 that bottle the opportunity as well that we've had partners that have done 15 20 years that are then able to sort of step back and say right I no longer want to be a uh, a partner, be an associate, and I'll do my last couple of years enjoying what I joined Medicine to do. So it works well both from a moving up, moving back, depending on where people are in their time of life, whether it's family commitments, you need a change, you, you want to try something, or you try it, you think, actually, that, that, that's not for me. Mm. All of those bits are in there that hopefully make us a little bit different. Hopefully, we've we've also ensure that each site still has its own identity so they don't feel as though they're, they're sort of caught up in a large-scale sort of corporate environment where, where you just yeah. but overall I, I think it stemmed from having the a, a good team that we've, we've been able to build from that everybody feels as though they could come to work and hopefully make a difference
1: mm-hmm. yeah so your, your your structure in terms of um. The levels for salary GP is is unique as far as I'm aware, um, having salarieds, then associates, then non-equity partners, then full-blown partners. Um, we've probably recruited for nearly 2,000 practices across the UK and I've, I've never come across a model like it. And it just does just seem to make sense. <laughs> um, it, it's, it does seem logical. Like you say, um, how do you know if you want to do it or not? Well, how do you know if you can do it? And how does the practice know that you'd be a good partner if you don't know until you just suddenly become a partner one day? You go, one, you, you're a salaried GP one day, and then tomorrow you become a partner. That that wouldn't happen in many many other industries. So it it has felt slightly unusual <laughs> that that is the the normal model. So I think the way you're doing it, um, well, it's clearly working um, because I know how many of your salarieds have become associates, and associates have then become. Non-equity partners and so on. It's clearly it's clearly working. Um, so, what one final question? It's just a really easy one. Um, it's what, what does the future hold for primary care? <laughs> <laughs> and what would you do if you were health secretary? Oh,
2: crazy! We, we, we about, You know, did PCNs change much? So, on the, in that vein, will ICBs change much? It, it, we we can't continue in the same vein.
3: Mm-hmm
2: but I'm not sure there's appetite to change or, or if people feel as though they've got the headspace to want to change. And, and for us, it, it's, it's a really slow burn. You know, when we, when we merge, we don't push anything. It, it's about, you said, wanting to merge with like-minded practices that can see the benefits of, of, of coming together and, and changing how you operate. The, the future for primary care is, is, is a really tricky one, isn't it? You know, there's, there's degrees needing to be done making some unpopular decisions about, I, I personally feel as though a practice with less than sort of 10,000 patients isn't viable in terms of that uh, economies of scale on that site, for the number of bodies on the site in terms of startup <laughs> and the financial viability. So it'll be easier to make larger sites in the urban areas, but how do you do that in the rural areas? Mm-hmm. But the, the smaller family practice model, I, I, I generally don't feel is sustainable. The partnership model is that sustainable we've done it differently as you're saying not only with the different stages but in terms of how do we value our buildings so you don't buy in as a partner an inflated book price of a, of a building mm. we've done it alternative use for a number of reasons one is if you want to change your service delivery you've not got the um, uh, possible negative equity of, 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 of over borrowing for your building You've not got the issues of newer partners coming in saying, so, crikey, how on earth do I buy into that? And, and would I buy into that place so that that GP uh, can retire? All of those bits make the current model, I, I think, something that's not sustainable. In an ideal world, w- what would I see? I think if GPs were the provider arm of an acute working together and sharing the resources, I think there would be, a more sustainable, solid way forward for both patients and practice. I think that, that joined up working. Maybe it'll be something that ICBs will bring. Mm. But I think whilst everybody's still got their own individual budget, which you quite rightly defend and want to keep, it's gonna be really hard to do any change. As health secretary, do you want to do something so so <laughs> radical, <laughs> and disruptive? It's a really difficult one, isn't it? We go around in Everything gets reinvented on a slightly different twist to the one that It's <laughs> yes. not necessarily a radical change. So it's—I've I've watched a couple of the um, larger acute's that have, that have worked with, with, with GP practices and sort of you know brought them in. For some of them, I think I think it's it's been fairly successful. But for a lot, they've done it on practices that were perhaps struggling a little bit anyway. So mm. they've almost done it on the back foot and made it really hard to show that as a as a positive, mm. uh, it, it's going to be up to us in general practice to make the changes. It, you know, if we wait until it's done to us, we'll, we'll probably get something that we're not particularly uh, pleased with and that probably isn't the right or the best thing for patients. Mm. And, uh, if, if ICBs bring us something, I think that would be uh, the, the next step but we may be having this conversation in a couple of years' time and there'll be a replacement for ICBs. That will say, right, PTNs didn't work, ICBs didn't work. What's the answer? Charging patients to a degree? Would, would that stem something? Mm. Would that mean that people thought about it a little bit more and, and planned possibly? But I'm not sure that even that would be the answer of making a, a, a massive change to what we, we see at the moment. You know, some of the stuff that, that we get coming through that's, urgent or you know requires action you look you think well actually with a little bit of planning you could have probably done this yourself uh, and saved on running out of medications um, those little bits you think actually you know with a little bit more planning this could be better changing that um, that mindset that you must always see a GP because they they know everything best how you Hmm. need to embrace the the right clinician and and it probably won't be a GP. To get what you need. But all of those bits, it's, it's so difficult, James. I, I, I don't think there's any straightforward, easy answer. For us, we want to continue to merge and grow um, so we can. I think we can be the best at what we can in, in general practice. But the next steps for us would be looking to say, how do we manage some of the other pathways, some of the diagnostic pathways? Can we get to a size where we can have a our own diagnostic units so we can actually stop the weights on that and we can... Mm. improve outcomes and get better results quicker for our patients that could be the next step Mm. Um, but we can't just sit back and wait for it to be done it's something we've got to progress ourselves
1: yeah and to do that presumably you'd have to be over a hundred thousand patients would you
2: yeah I I think that would be a a, the next sort of logical step Um, and I said you know working with, with, with practices that hopefully see us as an opportunity and not as a threat uh, hopefully, we can change the you know that that you know, the, the large scale corporate vendor there isn't actually that it's it's people <laughs> in general practice wanting to do the best thing for patients and the team that work within them.
3: But
2: yeah. I think that's that's certainly work in progress as well.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay then. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Um, you offered great insight, but you've got three hundred people to manage. Um, and 70,000 people to take care of. So I should probably let you get back, get back yeah, to work. Yeah, you will see me because I
2: never get out of my
1: office. So. No, exactly. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Cheers, David. Take care.
0: You've been listening to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you're a practice looking to recruit permanent clinicians, such as GPs, Nurses or allied health staff, please get in touch at MenloParkRecruitment.com or email James at MenloParkRecruitment.com for daily primary care news. Please follow Menlo Park Recruitment on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast.